Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's best and brightest radio station. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and this week, I'm delighted to be joined by one of my favourite contemporary filmmakers, Bill Morrison. Bill was born in Chicago in 1965, and he's now based in New York. After graduating from the Cooper Union School of Art in 1989 with a major in painting and film animation, he began his career in 1992 with a short film called Footprints. And he made several more before his widely acclaimed first feature, Decasia, came out in 2002. Decasia typified his distinctive approach of setting rare archive footage, in this case silent era film stock in varying states of disrepair, to contemporary music. And in 2013, it became the first 21st century film selected by the US Library of Congress to its National Film Registry. Since then, he's made several more features, including Spark of Being, The Miner's Hymns and The Great Flood, all of which we'll discuss during the show, and many more shorts, often made in collaboration with contemporary composers, including John Adams, Laurie Anderson, Bill Frisell, Philip Glass, Michael Gordon, Henrik Gorecki, Johan Johansson, the Kronos Quartet, Steve Reich and Julia Wolfe. Bill is a Guggenheim Fellow and has received the Alpert Award for the Arts, an NEA Creativity Grant and a Fellowship from the Foundation for Contemporary Arts. His work was recognised with a mid-career retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in 2014-15 and his most recent feature, Dawson City Frozen Time, got my vote for the best film of the year in Sight and Sound's annual critics poll in 2016. Indeed, on the day that we're recording this show, uh, Dawson City Frozen Time is screening at the Cinema Museum in Kennington. Uh, Sadly, this is on air. Too late for you to see that, but it's not too late for you to go to the Cinema Museum's website and find information about how to save the Cinema Museum, one of uh, of the many things that makes London kind of exciting and beautiful and creatively active and, like many of those things, under threat from the hands of the property developers. So... um, We'll tweet the link to the Save the Cinema Museum campaign after the show, and we'll also tweet several links to Bill and his work. Uh, Bill, it's a real pleasure to have you on Sweet 212. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Julia. Great to be here. Absolutely. Wonderful to have you. Um, I'd like to start off by just talking about how you came to film. Um, I know you studied with the great animator Robert Breer, um, but maybe we could talk about how you you moved from painting to, to film. Right. I, I um, entered Cooper Union as a painting student, and um, but I was able to study with Breer on my very first semester. So I knew I wanted to get into film or at least animation, um, thinking of that as um, a sequence of paintings um, was sort of an attractive way of, uh, of understanding something that painting could do um, uh, and that film couldn't, but also something that film could do that painting couldn't and try to find something in between those two that express sort of um, the inexorable march of time that no moment can be grasped. And uh, with Breer's work, I really found an affinity, um, the way he would draw or paint on these um, index cards, a kind of card you could buy at any corner shop, and then animated them uh, on a self-styled Bolex animation stand. 
uh, and sort of was able to invent space and uh, imagination in a way that was very unique and very personal. And also I just found him to be such a, a comforting presence um, in the midst of the, the madness that was the mid-'80s uh, Manhattan, downtown Manhattan art scene, which was quite intimidating to me as a 19-year-old uh, moving to town. Uh, there was something um, down-to-earth, Midwestern, about uh, Breer's, the way he talked, the way he told stories. Um, and um, you know, he was a, a comforting presence for me. Um, I'd like to talk about... Um how you started using kind of archive film and why why you've tended to use film from the silent period specifically yeah i think um you know going through that uh, the art school days i was um first trying to draw 24 um similar images per second um, which you know took the better part of a semester to get seven or eight seconds and uh so then maybe i would move on towards shooting film and distressing that so sort of a subtractive form of animation for lack of a better word um and then reconstructing that on an animation stand um, in this case i was printing individual photographs from a uh, camera negative and painting developer and fix on with um, ox uh, ox tail hair brushes and uh and then numbering those um individual prints and then reanimating them. Uh, that drew me to the paper print collection, um, the very first film collection, if we can call it that. Um, it's a, uh, a, a group of films that have been amassed under the same banner or the same collection because they were all deposited at the Library of Congress as uh, individual printed frames. Um, so it was a um, sort of a not large conceptual leap to go from what I was doing in the darkroom to finding uh, these roles that had been produced this way uh, for legal purposes um, to fall under a still photographic uh, copyright act which predated a later motion picture copyright act and to find that these roles existed they were in the public domain they were uh, often of very arcane uh, subject matter um, narratives and actualities, as they are called, and um, that also they had been touched by time um, in a way that I was attempting to do with my oxtail hair brush. Um, and I found that very attractive, that there was this randomness to uh, the distress and um, that there was another hand at work that wasn't a human hand. Yeah, um, I'd like to just talk momentarily about some of your influences. I mean watching kind of archive footage and filmmakers that experiment with archive footage I tend to think of this wonderful line of Austrian avant-garde filmmakers that goes through people like Peter Kabelka, Gustav Deutsch and Peter Tchaikovsky who I think we will cover on a, a future show sometime next year um, but you've also sort of spoken about uh, Ken Jacobs the American um, avant-garde filmmaker who's, who was making films from the 60s until the early 2000s and um, and uh, La Jete by Chris Marker and uh, Tout le Mémoire du Monde by uh, Alain René. And I wonder if you'd like to speak a bit about those films and your practice. Sure. I mean, uh, uh, both Kubelka and Jacobs um, were introduced to me by Robert Breer um, in his class. Uh, Kubelka was a, a dear friend and uh, also Jacobs a contemporary. And Tom Tom the Piper's son, um, Ken Jacobs, 
a long-form extrapolation of a one-reeler um, that was saved as a paper print uh, by the same name um, was my introduction to the paper print uh, collection and um, therefore opened the doors to me what the, the implications of that um, collection were, not just in terms of titles and content, but um, um, as packages of time that had, um, you know, gone through different mediations over the, the century to arrive um, to us now. And um, it was really with that in mind that I started to explore um, telling that story with that collection uh, for the film that became the film of her some years later. Yeah, I'd like to talk about the film of her, which is, I think, 1996. Right. And... Um you know, it sets up some themes that you explore uh, kind of throughout your career and uh, in particular in Decasia and Dawson City Frozen, Frozen Time, which we will we will come on to talk about. Um, in the film of her, um, maybe you'd like to explain about the, just explain the film to our listeners. Um, right, well, as I was um, sort of just outlining, so this collection that had uh, uh, come to exist as a legal documents in the um, vaults of the Library of Congress um, as uh, as proof of a producer's ownership of a uh, of a film, uh, but under a still copyright act. So these are positive photographic prints uh, in the shape of a film reel, um, but unprojectable. So just uh, you think of like a receipt roll that would fit into a cash register. That's what these things look like, but they were lined with images. And um, uh, because the originals were all nitrate and as we all know, highly combustible, and um, these became fossils for uh, films that no longer were available to us. Um, the story tells the, uh, the, the film tells the story of a young clerk, um, Howard Walls, who um, became aware of the collection um, and while the poet Archibald MacLeish uh, was actually the uh, librarian of Congress and understood the value of this collection. So uh, they had been slated for destruction to be removed from a vault and um, burned uh, to make room for new storage. And uh, Walls took it upon himself to throw himself in front of the uh, the trucks as they arrived and um, and salvaged the collection, and um, but was otherwise uh, inept in trying to return these individual photographs to any viewable film, um, as he was charged to do. And uh, eventually, the that job was taken away from him by a uh, a studio detective um, out in Los Angeles, uh, a guy by the name of Kemp Niver, who came to write the uh, the catalog that we affectionately call the. Uh, the Big Brown Book, which is the early motion picture um, in the paper print collection, um, which really outlines um, the contents of what we know of existing film from 1896 to 1912. So I set about to tell this story um, first with interviews. I went out and interviewed Walls and Niver, um, and that this was in the early 1990s, and uh, they were both men in their 80s. Um, neither was very much nice to say about the other. Um, in fact, neither could remember the other's name properly. Um, but uh, uh, as I started thinking about it, I thought that it would be an interesting story to try to tell using the content of the, uh, of the collection itself and uh, other archival sources where they could be accessed and in some ways show this story as a, uh, a story of media, of cinema, 
and how, um, again, these images could travel through the century in different stages, um, through different iterations and different mediations and, and come to us today. Yeah, I mean, that leads us nicely on to uh, your first uh, feature film, Decasia, from, from 2002. Um, I first saw this film five or six years ago in a screening at um, the Bethnal Green Working Men's Club in London, uh, run by the Close Up Centre, who, of course, are now screening the film again. Um, I want to just um, quote the critic uh, Lawrence Weschler in the New York Times, who was writing about... Decasia, and he was writing about the um, the background to Decasia. He says, from the earliest days of cinema, Thomas Edison, George Eastman, and their fellow trailblazers zeroed in on celluloid, the world's first synthetic plastic, which is produced by treating celluloid nitrate, cotton combined with a mixture of nitric acid and sulfuric acid, with camphor and alcohol. It was the ideal flexible, spoolable and transparent base upon which to slather their various arcane photographic emulsions. The nitric cellulose medium, however, suffered from two serious drawbacks. For starters, it was highly explosive, a close cousin of nitroglycerine. And even once its explosive potential had been tamed, the material remained extremely flammable. It burned far more fiercely, in fact 20 times faster than wood, 20 tonnes, the equivalent of 8,000 reels of 1,000 feet each, can easily burn itself to pure ash in just three minutes. And these sorts of disasters happened on a fairly regular basis. In 1937, for example, a massive nitrate explosion and fire in Little Ferry, New Jersey, consumed almost all of the silent films ever produced by the Fox Film Corporation. Similar calamities in 1977 and 78 at the National Archives Film Depository took out the preponderance of the universal newsreel legacy. So Decasia is a film that uh, uses the fact that silent film footage in particular um, had this inherent vice, this um, not just this preponderance to explosions and fires, but also to kind of slow decay. Um, and so Decasia is a 70-minute um, film, I think made kind of as a response to Disney's Fantasia. Um Maybe you'd like to talk a bit about um, the film uh, and its its soundtrack that you made with Michael Gordon from the Bang on the Bang on a Can Ensemble. Um, how the film came to be commissioned um, and how you came to sort of use film decay as a subject for for this kind of film. So, um, uh, yeah, this was a originally a commission for a, a new symphony by Michael, which was to have uh, a film accompaniment. To it, and Michael and I had worked on uh, a couple of projects with my colleagues at Ridge Theater prior to that, and so Michael asked that um, we make the visual element for this yet uh, as as yet unwritten symphony, um, because at that time it was understood as images that would be in support of the music, um, the commissioning orchestra, um, the Basel Symphonietta who were uh, awarded the uh, City of Culture in Europe um, for that year, uh, 1999 or 2000. Um, and uh, they asked uh, for Michael to write this piece, and their shorthand for that project was Fantasia, in that uh, the images would follow the music. Uh, so we were quite eager to change that name as soon as possible. Um, and it was only a few months after our first initial meetings that I visited an archive in uh, South Carolina, 
which is now known as the Moving Image Research Center at the University of South Carolina. And they house a lot of the Fox movie tone and uh, newsreel outtakes. Um, and uh, I was at a conference there, um, the first iteration of what's now known as the Orphan Film Symposium um, back in 1999. And uh, I visited that library for the first time. And on that first day of um, sort of poking around there, I found this newsreel footage of a boxer seemingly um, uh, shadow boxing a, an amorphous blob. Well, this blob was uh, half the frame decaying um, where a punching bag had once been. And uh, I loved what it said. It looked like this guy was fighting the unknown or, um, again, this amorphous blob was open to interpretation, but um, sort of fighting death or at least aging or cancer or whatever, however you wanted to interpret it. And there was something heroic and valiant about that, but also sort of comical and tragic about it as well. And uh, in a way, it summed up um, a lot of things in one single image that I thought um, is beautiful about um, about life, but also how life is, can be depicted. Um, and so I thought that I would try to find other images like that where there was a uh, sort of a, a foolish hero, um, somebody trying to... Um, make their way through the fight the good fight um, and uh, transcend um, the, the normal bounds of mortality. And in so doing, um, the, the decay would be licking at their heels or pulling the carpet out from under them. And there'd be something beautiful and uh, comical in that um, at the same time. So when I returned to New York and met with my colleagues, um, uh, I started, I suggested the name Decasia to um, supplant Fantasia, but that was the extent to which uh, it had any relationship to Walt Disney. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it's a film that made a big impression on me when I saw it. I mean, I was very struck by the uh, the boxer that you mentioned, I think is one of the more famous images from the film. One thing that really stayed with me was there's a shot, I think, of a hut burning down at one point, and just at the moment where the the hut collapses... Um, the film burns away as yeah. well. And, um, you know, it's a film that really, really invites you to reflect not just, I guess, on the mortality of film, but, yeah, of life itself, as, as you say. Uh, well, hopefully life continues, but we certainly are mortal within it. And um, that was trying to explore that dichotomy. Um, uh, is the the film mortal in the image? The images persevere or are the images mortal, but the film perseveres it was, it was open to interpretation um that there but there was two things there was the material that we were always made aware of that was rotting before our eyes and then there was the emulsion that co coated it that went with the material that was um dependent on this as a substructure so um uh, one could be the mind and one could be the body sure i mean a lot of your films i think play on the um you know, on the eeriness that I think all film has inherent in it. There's something, I think, quite uncanny about seeing people or places that have long since, like, kind of passed on, um, recorded on film, that I think there's there's a kind of, there's a strangeness to that that far surpasses the same effect that you get from still images, um, let alone from, from paintings and other representations. What I one thing I find interesting in your films is that um, you know you often use archive material. Most of your film is made up from archive material that will be unfamiliar 
to a viewer. I want to talk momentarily about one of my favourite of your short films. We haven't got time to cover them all, unfortunately, but um, a film you made in 2007 called Who by Water, um, which takes its name um, from the uh, from the um, Unetana Tokev poem, um, that line, who shall live, who shall expire, who, who by water, who by fire. Um, and the film is a collection of um, of kind of itinerary shots of passengers boarding ships, and the combination of this imagery and the name of the film invites the viewers to contemplate um, the fates of the people people depicted. Um, I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit more about the process of making that film and the the source material and how you were using it. Um, right. So um, Michael Gordon, who who wrote the music again, uh, same composer as Dikasia, um I think he took the title from the Yom Kippur prayer um, uh, that's uh, recited every year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, who by water? Who by fire? Who you know? Who who shall die in the next year? Or who has died in the past year? Um, and uh, how they'll be remembered? Um, and uh, I thought of that as um, you do talk about. You mentioned the eeriness of film, um, that they these things, uh, unbeknownst to the subject matter, have who would none of whom have survived, and none of whom could really conceive that their faces would be viewed again a hundred years later. Um, they are again these sort of packages of time that have been um, sent, if you will, in a bottle, uh, like a message in a bottle on the sea. And, um, and there is something strange about seeing these strangers' faces, um, some of whom might have been well known in their communities um, uh, at the time, um, but and some of them not. Um, but there was a, evidently a, a long-standing tradition of documenting um, passengers. Um, both arriving and departing uh, aboard big ships um, that predated cinema. It had been happening with still photographs since uh, since photograph since cameras were portable, and um, uh, so there was this interesting uh, dynamic in that a lot of these people were being shot with a motion picture camera for the first time, and how did they respond to that? There was all now all this. This package of time was longer than the instant where they were frozen by the crosshairs of a shutter, um, but it went on for many seconds longer, and then it started to reveal the dynamics of uh, the situation and the interrelation, interpersonal relations of the subject matters um, that I found very interesting. Um, suffused by um, the fact that it's many of them are shot in the early 1920s were um, aboard ships. Um, in our modern sensibility, we are naturally, um, uh, we naturally think of the Titanic disaster. Um, in fact, one of the uh, more severe looking subjects had lost his first wife in the Titanic and he was he's seen there with his second wife in um, an unsmiling uh, portrait um, for, for sure. Um, and, um, it came out of Dikasia. There's a sequence in Dikasia where I just um, uh, focus on faces, um, faces that are making direct contact with the lens and therefore with the audience. And uh, I thought about an expanded 
sequence where that was the case throughout and and then hit upon these arrivals and departures which were fairly easy to to search for and um, were fairly colorful in their in their portraits and so um, I started assembling those and um, found that they were a, a, a fairly counter, a powerful counterpoint to uh, Michael's music which is really heavy hitting in this film yeah. Yeah, I mean, the film, yes, like you say, sort of recalls an era where there were a number of high-profile maritime disasters, most obviously the Titanic, but yep. also the General Slocum in um, 1904 in, I think, New York. Yeah, East uh, River. The sinking of the uh, Lusitania during the First World War. Sure. Um, and others. Um, I mean, it also, as, as a big silent film buff, it got me thinking about the melancholy of some of the films that have been lost. And I think one of the strangest and most fascinating film stories um, of, of early film comes out of the Titanic disaster because the first person rescued was an American actress called Dorothy Gibson, film actress, um, who three months after uh, being saved from the Titanic then starred in a short film called Saved from the Titanic, uh, wearing the dress that she'd been worn when she was you know, pulled out of the lifeboat in the North Atlantic. Um, the film was lost in a studio fire in 1914. Um, I think something like 75% of, um, of silent film has been lost. So there's, there's this huge kind of melancholy for anyone who's really delved into this, this history. Um, and I'm going to do a very uh, nice and subtle segue now. Um, you've, you know, you delved into uh, this kind of this early film history again, uh, with your film Spark of Being, which I think kind of is quite different to a lot of your other films in that you um, you, re you retell the story of Frankenstein um, using different cinematic um, sources, um, some of which, uh, I don't think, all of, is all of the footage from different films of Frankenstein? No, there's there's actually no footage from Frankenstein per se or any right. iteration. Or per, that was one of the uh, parameters is that uh, it would all be from educational and news films in that uh, those were a way of getting information and the creature's uh, assimilation was all education was all trying to glean what he could from his surroundings and in there in so doing became a superhuman um but yeah that's my only adaptation if you will <laughs> yeah i mean it has an interesting resonance with a couple of films made around the same time i think um one of which i wrote about recently is currently playing at the tape modern which is the clock by christian markley uh which i think does something that contrasts interestingly with a lot of your films in that Markley uses a lot of very familiar material. Um, you know, the clock for listeners who are not familiar with it is a 24-hour-long film installation um, that can be synced to the local time wherever it's playing um, and is culled from numerous um, films made throughout cinematic history, uh, often but not always with references to a specific time, but also with reference to the passing of time throughout the film. Um, I think that's a very interesting work. And um, there was a work by Guy Madden that uh, retold Vertigo through found footage that I know you were quite interested in. Uh, green Flaw, excuse me, The Green Fog, uh, which I believe premiered at um, the San Francisco Film Festival a year and a half ago. So that would have been uh, April of 2017. Um, uh, also an adaptation of Vertigo um, using found footage 
Um, and I would just add that the clock, I think, is one of the great masterworks in any art form of the 21st century. I'm really incredibly awestruck by that piece. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly simple concept that is executed extraordinarily well. Um, yeah. And it's one of those kind of ideas that you kind of, you almost think, oh, I wish I'd thought of that. Yeah, I've um, often thought that. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure a lot of us have. It's been extraordinarily uh, successful. But um, I just want to draw the conversation back to Spark of Being um, for a moment. Um, I mean, the Frankenstein story uh, was first filmed, in, I think, 1910 by a director called J. Searle Dawley. Um, working at the Thomas Edison Studios, described itself as a liberal adaptation from Mrs. Shelley's famous story. And there were subsequent versions by James Whale in 1931, uh, Andy Warhol and Mel Brooks in the 70s. Um, friend of the show, Gareth Evans, who um, was our guest last week talking about Peter Watkins here on Suite 212. Um, in an essay about Spark of Being, he wrote... If the creature attains renewed relevance now in an age concerned with both the implications of the possible steps to consciousness of automata and the legal approval of multiple parents for incubated offspring, this is because, like any primary creation, it has lodged itself so deeply in the popular psyche that it is as if it has always been there and therefore always available for repurposing. Um, I think you've, uh, you've talked elsewhere about the parallels between in the story of the creation of Frankenstein's monster uh, and the sort of invention of film and film genres and their kind of their mixing. Um, I wonder if there's anything more you'd like to say to that. Yeah, I mean, um, well, first of all, in that first um, first Frankenstein of 1910, when, um, I really thought of, in 2010, I thought it could in some way be a, a centenary of that. Uh, though at that time, it was a very rare film. Um, it was held by a... The only known print was hold, held by a single collector in uh, Wisconsin who uh, uh, held it for ransom for, I think, a million dollars. Um, and uh, we only came to uh, obtain a copy of it after he had um, died, which is often the case. And the, uh, the uh, you know, his children, usually a daughter in the case of film collectors, is all too eager to let the... Uh, the coveted nitrate collection go for uh, less than the father was asking. And that was the case um, with this particular uh, film as well. It's not by no means a masterpiece, but it is this liberal interpretation does blend the psyche of the creator and the creature. Um, they are one in the same, and it's a some sort of um, schizophrenic split uh, between the two. And um, in my treatment of the spark of being, I, I sort of saw it the same way that you had um, the captain of the icebound vessel um, upon which the uh, creature passes, and uh, the creator or doctor um, follows in pursuit, and then ends up on the boat telling the story to the doctor, the audience. Um, us, and um, and then those three characters at, at once sort of switch positions um, between who, who is the creator and who is the created, and um, the film, of course, is the creature. Um, when we see film from a film POV, if you will, that is, we see the uh, the inner workings of the emulsion and the sprockets and um, the material treatment of the film, uh, we're, we're in effect... Um, seeing the story from the creature's point of view. Um, so uh, that was my own take on it anyway. 
Yeah, I'd like to just talk for a moment um, because you developed the film through a residency programme at Stanford University that you and the composer Dave Douglas were were working on. And um, I know Dave used like a computer music library of samples that were then modified by a turntablist, DJ Olive. Um, I just wonder if we could talk a bit about how digital archiving and editing has maybe changed your work. I mean, I've, I've worked a bit with archive footage myself in a short film I made last year uh, called You Will Be Free. Um, and the process of editing that archive footage digitally, I can only begin to imagine how much longer it would have taken if I was working with analog material. Oh, yes. And there's absolutely no question about it. I mean, Decasia was made in an analog, entirely analog way. It was... Um, all the um, footage, maybe there was a VHS reference copy. Uh, there was no digital reference copy to any of it. Most of it was uh, seen as, um, you know, film reference copies and physically visiting archives to view them and then um, negotiating on with forms and paper um, made out with pens, pencils and pens, you know, to get rights. And, um, um, you know, it was... A rather protective community. Also, at that time, I found that archives still held their um, their arch their holdings close to them. Um, certainly, the idea that they had decaying footage was not uh, well publicized, and um, uh, you know, the the suggestion that they might have any decaying footage that they'd want to share was um, met with some sort of raised eyebrows, if not outright horror. But there was always younger people or people my age who um, I could w talk to and who would um, ferry me through the system and say, look, just talk to me and we can get you to see what you want. Um, but it was a long and laborious and very expensive process to like pull a an original print or uh, in some cases a negative and to make a physical photochemical copy of that using a laboratory. Uh, and then um, uh, in this case, I was making uh, work prints, as we used to say, and, and cutting it on a flatbed uh, in my kitchen. Um, and uh, so there was little scraps of frames that, you know, I was saving or, uh, you know, ends taped all over. Um, it was just a complete organizational disaster, you know, um, and many cans and many pieces of tape and many scraps of film everywhere. Um, you know, the, the metamorphosis that has, uh, you know, happened for all of us with the digital revolution since the turn of the millennium and, um, is no, is felt keenly in the archive, you know, that, um, not only are these things more accessible, they're now free. You know, many of them are available online, um, albeit at lower resolutions. And um, so um, I really credit, you know, Rick Prelinger, a great visionary and archivist who um, opened up his vast holdings early on um, to the Internet, created the Internet Archive. And with the knowledge that if he could put more, you know, standard resolution clips up online, then he would get more business by um, filmmakers who actually wanted higher resolution material. And um, that vision has proved true. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting when you're you're working with much older material. I mean, a lot of the material I was working with was from the 1980s. And probably the biggest challenge was finding out who the copyright holders were for some of it. There was one particularly interesting piece of footage 
that I wanted to use from a Channel 4 documentary screened in, I think, about 1985. And I had to abandon it because just every road we tried to take to find our way to the copyright holder just, just led nowhere. Yeah. Um, I'd like to move on now to talk about uh, your film, The Great Flood, which documents the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927. Uh, in which around 500 people were killed, uh, 200,000 uh, African Americans were displaced from homes and had to live in relief camps. Um, it's a tragedy and a disaster that hasn't quite remained in the US or wider cultural memory in quite the same way as, for example, the um, the huge earthquake that struck San Francisco in 1906. Um, actually, I think one reason why the San Francisco earthquake has remained in the cultural memory is because it was one of the first disasters to be caught on film. Um, you know, there's some very eerie and very striking footage of that that you can you can find online. At least the aftermath. Yeah, the yeah. aftermath, of course. Um, but the uh, the Great Flood, of course. Um, the Mississippi flood uh, was was really kind of brought back into the cultural memory by the Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath in New Orleans in 2005. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about um, why you came to focus on that particular event and, you know, how you found the footage and went about making the film. So um, I was working on a uh, another uh, music film project um, uh, again, with my collaborators at Bang on a Can, uh, the three principal composers, Michael Gordon, David Lang, and Julia Wolf. And the project um, was called Shelter. Um, and uh, we were making um, visual correspondence for each one of these um, compositions that dealt in some way with the theme of shelter. And um, uh, there was one um, composition that was going to end the evening. Um, and it, it dealt with um, uh, the theme of how no building is um, no castle. Um, all of them are the same in, in God's eyes, um, and you know none of them are permanent. Um, and uh, I s tried to think of what a visual uh, approximation of that could be, um, and I started thinking of aerial footage of a flooded landscape um, that somehow uh, you you would see um, you know the earth below um, sort of um, democratized if you will and obliterated of all details by a flooded landscape and I was quite sure something like that existed that there um, floods are always an attractive uh, thing to for to photograph because of that they the the image of a stop sign poking out of uh, uh, water is something I think you can see uh, from any any documentation of a flood from any time, um, and so I, I I set about looking for that, and I went back to that same archive in South Carolina, uh, really with the keywords you know aerial flood, and um, I kept coming across footage from 1926 and 1927, and um, uh, you know at the time I wasn't uh, keenly aware of what that particular flood was, and it was over a large geographical area. Um, so, you know, I, I took it for what it was worth and um, and cut this piece together, and this would have been in, uh, um, I guess, early 2005. We premiered it in, uh, in Europe, in Germany, in, in March. Uh, it would have its New York premiere that fall, um, I believe in 
November at BAM. And after that would be um, uh, maybe a month after Katrina. And all of a sudden, these images, which had looked ancient and archival, um, um, sort of ghostly, um, you know, a few months earlier, now just look like um, the same images um, that we were seeing on the nightly news. Um, and Katrina, of course, was the uh, hurricane that wiped out New Orleans and um, became uh, sort of a, a political lightning rod for that area um, in that in, there was a, um, you know, a, a flood that was largely attributed to uh, the failure of um, the Army Corps of Engineers to shore up a, uh, a, a dam, I believe it is, though I might have the terminology wrong. Um, at any rate, uh, um, it brought up the same recriminations that had existed in 1927, where um, an entire uh, two parishes were um, sacrificed in order to save New Orleans. Uh, in other words, a, the rich um, town of the Orleans Parish uh, was saved by letting water um, further upriver out um, and destroying the, the homes and uh, communities of in, in the poorer parishes, which is a type of um, uh, political dynamic that exists with all floods. Um, what do you save? Who do you save? Um, what is sacrificed? Um, what is considered a greater good? Um, and so uh, that story um, got brought up a lot in the, re in the telling of Katrina. And uh, I started to research what had happened in 1927 and remarking that most of this footage that I'd, I'd used was actually from uh, a distinct flood or a, a series of floods that coalesced into a single flood in, in the spring of 1927. It was a very wet winter from 26 to 27, and many towns in the tributaries had flooded in the meantime. But you could f witness the crest um, as it made its way down the Mississippi in uh, the first few weeks of April. Um, and... Um, it was a massive disaster, as you note, um, and it changed a lot of um, how we deal with, uh, you know, first of all, river politics. Um, it, at that time, uh, all levees were the responsibility of the private landowners on either side of the river, and that created, of course, great competition. If your neighbor across the river had a failed levy, um, then your property might be saved. So, of course, there was a lot of sabotage. And um, the movement to federalize and uh, create a, a levy system was, was made in, uh, in response to this. Um, but there was all sorts of political fallout, too, because this was a uh, really a disaster for the African-American sharecroppers um, who were held on these levies at gunpoint uh, to, to continue working on them. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and in the wake of this flood um, had lost whatever chance of making a small uh, pittance of pay from their crops for the next year. And uh, whereas the great migration had been going on in full swing, that would be the migration of African-Americans from the South to northern cities. Um, it had been going on, of course, since uh, the emancipation. Um, but it also um, had picked up steam during the First World War when uh, a lot of jobs became available as soldiers went overseas. And, uh, and this was yet another chapter in what's known as the Great Migration, the, the Great Flood. 
um, one that's well documented in art, literature, and painting, um, and also in music. And it became um, sort of the same time when the electric guitar was uh, introduced, and um, and there was an urbanization of the Delta blues sound and heard in towns like Chicago and Detroit. And um, this coalesced into what we now know as rock and roll. So uh, there is this um, this kind of legacy, um, uh, most of it bad, <laughs> a little bit of it good. Um, you know, the uh, Herbert Hoover, of course, made the flood um, sort of his first photo op. Um, he appeared on a lot of newsreels, appearing to um, direct traffic and um, coming to save the day. Um, you know, he uh, uh, used those newsreels um, in a way that is is familiar to us today, but um, was sort of the first political propaganda using the medium and uh, and successfully uh, leveraged that into a successful presidential bid. Um, in the in in the uh, course of doing that, um, you know, as a Republican candidate. Um, which had traditionally been aligned with the African-Americans, the, the party of Abraham Lincoln, uh, he was unable to fulfill his pr- promises to that community um, upon election. And there we see the switch from the Republican Party as the party of the African-Americans and disenfranchised people to that purportedly the Democratic Party, though I would caution anyone to think that I believe that's the case today. Uh, Well, I certainly don't. Um, You're listening to Suite 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM. Um, I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today we're taking a quick tour through the um, films of the American um, filmmaker Bill Morrison, who's with me in the studio. Uh, Bill, I just want to spend five minutes talking about um, the Miners' Hymns, uh, which was... um, premiered at the Durham Milers Gala in 2010 uh, and it's a film that engages with British history um, there are some parallels with with the Great Flood um, you know the Miners Hymns commemorates this this lost way of life um, which has been especially lamented after the uh, final historic defeat of the Miners in 1985 um, and it's scored by Johan Johansson um, and that score was often performed live indeed the uh, Reviews often focus more on on the music. Um, I mean, one of the things I like about the film is I think it you know it avoids over romanticizing the work of mining, uh, which is often very dangerous. Um, you know, there were several explosions just in the northeast in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries that killed hundreds of people. Uh, but the film does also show this kind of this lost community and this lost way of life. Um, I just wonder if you could talk very quickly about what the reception's been like when that film's been shown in in former mining towns in the UK. Yeah, I was only in one, um, and uh, that was quite remarkable to be in a a meeting hall um, and to be surrounded by um, miners and uh, those who'd worked in mines, their families, uh, extremely partisan crowd, right, A, a crowd that would boo and hiss when the uh, police appear on screen um, and where the banners of uh, the mines are mounted on the walls with great reverence, almost like uh, religious icons, you know. Um, so th- that was a uh, extremely moving experience for me. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, trafficking in images that had 
great emotional resonance for these people. And uh, so in a way, it was kind of uh, awe-inspiring to to um, to see the power of these kind of images. I, Of course, these aren't my images. They're images that I'm simply editing. Um, but to see them uh, revealed again and, um, and also to understand that certainly at that time, um, you know, the, it hadn't been talked about a lot uh, in this country, um, which I think was part of the reason um, that uh, the producer David Metcalf approached me and and Johan as foreigners um, who wouldn't have, uh, you know, of course, left leaning, um, sympathetic to the the cause of labor. Um, and uh, certainly that's how we were brought into the, the project. Um, but without sort of knowing the um, where, where these um, stark dividing lines were, particularly between North and South, um, uh, and, you know, the, the type of question I would sometimes receive in an interview would be like, well, haven't we heard enough about mining? Aren't we ready to uh, move on? You know, this was a terrible way of life. Why, why bring it up? You know, um, so to go into um, the mining towns and villages and to see it um, where it, it still was um, such a, um, uh, the, the, the wound was still very um, deep and open um, was a, a really eye-opening experience for me. Yeah, I mean, um, I would have loved to have spent more time on your film Beyond Zero, 1914 to 18, but um, we have a special series coming up on Suite 212 about the cultural impact of the First World War uh, to tie in with the um, 100th anniversary of the armistice. So um, unfortunately, I think as we've only got 10 minutes left, I think we might have to go straight to your most recent um, full-length feature film, which was Dawson City, Frozen Time, uh, which is being released, I think, on DVD by Second Run, I think, next year, DVD and Blu-ray. Right. Um, and, I mean, I, I urge anyone listening to see it. It's a genuinely extraordinary film. I was lucky enough to see it in the London Film Festival two years ago and was, was really... It's out on Movie uh, UK f- yes. till the end of the month as well. Yeah. So yeah, uh, we will send out the link to to Movie if you want to watch it. Um, I mean, this film tells the story of uh, Dawson City in Northwest Canada, which was a city um, founded during the Klondike Gold Rush at the end of the nineteenth century. Uh, obviously, the foundation and growth of this uh, city is kind of coterminous with the invention of film and moving image and the popularity of this as an art form as a form of entertainment um and so the film is kind of topped and tailed with a kind of tv documentary style um pair of segments talking about how this film came to be discovered in the permafrost below dawson city which um uh, the city was not abandoned and it's still got a population now of just over a thousand. Um, but that's well down from its heyday in the early 20th century when it had a population of about 10,000 and three cinemas. Um, maybe uh, you would like to tell the listeners more about this, uh, the discovery of this film in the permafrost and how you came to be aware of it and how, how you made a film out of it. Yeah, briefly. Um, so there was this... Um uh, circuit of cinemas throughout uh, Canada and Dawson City being the most remote village 
was the last to receive them. So these films uh, accumulated in mass. And um, as we noted earlier in the program, these are very flammable. And this was a town that was... Uh, you know, fighting fires from its very beginning. You know, it was built on wood to accommodate the permafrost, which um, all these buildings were structured on, and it was heated by wood. And, um, well, fires happened with some regularity. Um, they were abetted in some cases by the arrival of these highly flammable nitrate bombs uh, in the form of films. And they were often, uh, like much of the garbage, heaved into the uh, Yukon River every spring as the ice broke up. Um, or, uh, in some cases, enormous bonfires were organized where these silent films were burned. Um, they would accumulate for a certain amount of time in the basement of a uh, uh, the Carnegie, a former Carnegie Library, which had also been burned down. Um, the basement being the only working basement in town that was uh, below ground level and therefore cold. Um, but eventually, that filled up, and at that time, they had also the population, as you noted, was starting to dwindle, and a, um, the hockey uh, team had taken over the. Uh, swimming pool to make a permanent ice hockey rink that didn't suffer from the bulge of having a, 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 a empty pool underneath it. Um, and so as they uh, sought to s fill in the swimming pool, they took the contents of these films from the basement of the library and put them in the swimming pool, filled it with earth, paved it over, had a nice clean hockey rink for um, well the duration of that uh, particular athletic club. Um, some 50 years later, many decades after that athletic club had also been engulfed by flames and they were seeking to build a new one. This would now be in the uh, late 1970s. A bulldozer uncovered that uh, swimming pool and with it, s several hundred uh, reels of nitrate film. Um, again, the likes of which hadn't been seen. The It was an enormous find um, just in sheer volume, but most of these reels were the only remaining copies of um, the films that um, they represented. They, the originals and certainly all the other copies had gone up in warehouse fires elsewhere. Um, so in 1978, um, the operator of the bulldozer uh, had the, you know, the foresight to stop this construction and um, allowed some people to go in and examine it. And eventually a, the representative from the National Archives flew in and uh, said, yes, this is an important find. And uh, they spent the next few months pulling these films out of the, out of the pit and uh, were really just a week pulling them out of the pit and then trying to label them and, um, and eventually uh, restore them. And um, so in the same way that I told the story of the film of her, the story of the paper print collection using that particular collection, I said about telling this story as much as I could using the collection that was recovered and whatever uh, archival footage I could to support it. Yeah, so the film is an astonishing documentary kind of about the history of film in Dawson City up to the more or less the end of the silent period, which also is a history of film culture in general in that, that time. Um, and like you say, it's sort of made up using um, almost entirely, um, was made up, the main body of the film is made up using entirely the footage that was recovered. Um, so you see some kind of feature films that were popular at the time. Uh, you also see a lot of newsreel and you, you really get a sense of those kind of early pre-First World War film programs, which were often collections, kind of quite weird, almost like vaudevillian uh, collections of things, kind of collections of like newsreels, kind of comedies, 
uh, short little features or dramatic adaptations of literature. Um, and, you know, one of the things we see in Dawson City, Frozen Time is lots of these just insights into American history through the through the newsreel and also through the still photographs by Eric Hegg that you used through the film. So one of the things you'll find out through Dawson City, Frozen Time, is how the Trump family made their fortune. Uh, we won't give that story away, but I think when you see it, you'll be shocked, but maybe not surprised. Um, and, you know, there are some things that just uh major stories that maybe are forgotten about now um i was really struck by all the footage from the uh 1919 baseball match fixing scandal involving the chicago white Sox. um but you get this this sort of you know as well as well as this discussion of the klondike gold rush and kind of this this last gasp of this kind of type of frontier capitalism um and yeah, and the film really gives this this beautiful insight into into early film culture. Um, I wondered. I mean, we've we've only got a couple of minutes left now, so I wonder if there's anything you'd like to say in conclusion about Dawson City. Um, well, yeah, I mean, um, you touched upon it a little bit there. I mean, the first of all, if you think about it being um, film being built up with an explosive material. It's really a material of war and a material of colonialism. And in a way, it was used to colonize cultures. This is a town that supplanted a, an indigenous population for the purpose of mining gold. And then the entertainment that was needed to keep people there and um, to get them through the winter was uh, exactly that, a colonization of different thought and uh, different cultures and that had been uh, created for this audience and um, uh, or for audiences all around the world and in a way brought these uh, different cultures together um, seen through a singular sort of colonial lens and um, uh, what's interesting about the newsreels is that they do depict uh, a type of anarchic um, fervor of the the labor um, Wars that were going on in the uh, in the teens, particularly during the the uh, World War One, um, and you know how that was also uh, appealing to the populist population that would have been seeing these newsreels. This isn't the kind of story that is well reported today, but you would see uh, an anarchist like uh, Alexander Berkman heroically. Um, you know, talking to a, a group of wobbly leaders in Union Square. Uh, this is a man who's already um, tried to assassinate Henry Frick, but here he is depicted um, as a hero. And then five years later in another newsreel, he is uh, portrayed as a scoundrel being uh, deported along with his partner, Emma Goldman, um, on the Russian Ark. So really interesting to see this uh, tug of war between um, you know the the country that uh, it won and was maybe idealistically envisioned fighting this corporate autocracy and then eventually losing it and the same war is happening in Dawson City. Okay, well, I mean that's more or less all we've got time for today, unfortunately. Um, listeners, I'm sure that's given you an interesting insight into both Dawson City, Frozen Time, which I strongly urge you to go and watch on Mubi or on DVD or in the cinema, wherever you can find it. Um, we'll tweet out some links to um, to Bill's works, um, a number of his short works that are available online. We'll send out with the show. Um, all that remains for me to do is to uh, say thank you to Bill for joining me today. 
Um, and thank you for listening. Uh, I've been Juliet Jakes. This has been Sweet 212. We'll be back, same time, same place, next week. Take care. Goodbye.